day that you have made, we believe it's the day that you've made. And so in it, we will rejoice and be glad. Would we today be a group of people that truly find our hope in Christ alone? Would we live out the reality of our faith alone? Father, would we enjoy knowing that the truth that's found beautifully in Scripture alone, would we revel in the reality that we are your kids and you are our God alone? And so thank you so much, Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you allow us to hear your word, to wrestle with your word, and then, Father, to live your word. In your precious name we pray, amen. All right, have a seat, have a seat. We're having some technical difficulties. So anyways, Billy and I have a few things we'd like to tell you this morning, so we're really, really thankful you are. It's been a really long week that we've been kind of working through some things, though, so I'm appreciative of it. My golf game. <clears throat> All right, so here's what we're doing. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of 1 Peter. We've been wrestling through the book of 1 Peter. We're now into chapter 2, and we're going to be going 2-4 through, uh, through about verse. Am I back on again? Hey, all right. Thank you. Let me put it up here. Nice work, Billy. Take back all the mean things I've ever said about you. But one of the things that we've been wrestling through with the book of 1 Peter is this idea, and sometimes it's just called identity. Um, identity kind of just is this idea of, of, of kind of who am I? And there's a side of it, no matter who we are in this room, let me just say this. Whoever you think you are, that's how you will live. And so, so much of what Peter's going to do is he's going to remind us not well, who we think we are, because there's a side of it in which we live in a culture and a time which we think, we think it's okay, where we get to define who we are and, and what it means to be human. In fact, I would say the, one of the biggest realities that the church faces in the coming years and the coming kind of decades is going to all revolve around this idea of what does it mean to be me, but specifically who gets to define me. Now let me just say this from the outset. Doesn't it make sense that if God created the world, if he created everything that's in it, if he created you and me and he knows how things work, doesn't it make sense that really who should define who we are is God and not ourselves? Now this is what Peter's gonna do is he's gonna constantly have this rhythm of telling them not who they think they are, but more importantly, he's gonna tell them who they are, who God says that they are. And one of the fun things about this passage is first of all, I'm getting a ringing up here. One of the cool things about this passage is, is he's gonna call them, and you, you see this all the way back in chapter one, we are elect exiles, that's what he calls us. We're this group of people that were chosen we were chosen not just to be followers of Jesus, to be his very own. I think that's where we tend to think of this idea of chosen as being saved or to be one of his kids. But I think the thing we forget is that when he talks about us being exiles, we were chosen to be this group of people that in a lot of ways in this world, we don't fit. We, we follow Jesus, who by the way, when Jesus was here, he didn't fit. He came to his own and his own rejected him. 
But the powerful part about this is, is we were chosen to this time, this place. We, we, are, we are in the exact area and time that we're supposed to be. God has us here, and now we get to display him. And I would say this, the chief identity of who we are is that you and I were created to be image bearers. We were created to display God to the world. Now, in this particular passage, I think it's gonna be real important, and especially where we're going today, is to understand that all of it really is built out of this idea of identity. Now, identity can be an interesting thing. And in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it talks about this idea of God creating us. He, he created man, it says, in his own image. Male and female, he created them. He created them both in this unique way to display him, like I'm to talk about today. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 15, it talks about this idea that you and I are this, this people that no longer live for ourselves, but we're designed to live for Jesus Christ. But I would even, let me take it a little bit further. In this text that we're gonna look at today, we oftentimes define ourselves individually, like who am I in Christ? But what's so cool about Peter, and the thing I can't wait to unpack for everybody today, is it's not just who I am, but it's who we are. There's this amazing thing about this family that we've been invited into, this elect exiles. We were not designed to do this alone. And in Genesis 2, right, God brings Adam out and he goes, oh, it's not good for a man to be alone. Now, the way I always took that was, was that, you know, yeah, no duh, I need a woman in my life. But that really wasn't the exact point. We're not designed to do this alone. We're designed to do this with, with others. We are, we're designed to be a part of a group. And so what he's going to do is Peter's going to be this phenomenal southern person. He's going to say y'all a lot. In fact, every last aspect of 1 Peter 1.1 all the way to 2.12, if every time you see the word you, is y'all. Y'all. And so as you now read the book of 1 Peter, now I want you to read that in there because it's intended to be plural. Now in verse... Chapter 2, verse 4, let me just read it for us to kind of get us in there. He's going to tie in this idea of identity. And so the first aspect of identity is we're these elect exiles. But now who is he going to say we are now? Look at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what he's going to do here, and here's the next kind of idea of what it is or who we are, more importantly, if in the first part of it is we're elect exiles, now he's going to look at all of us and say, y'all are a temple, in some ways, right, you're going, okay, this is getting a little weird for me. Like, what is he even talking about? I'm a stone, and there's a living stone that's Jesus, and somehow also I'm this priest. What in the world does it mean? Well, the imagery that he's trying to conjure up in their heads to help them understand is if the first part of it was all about how do we begin to release from this world to truly set our hope on the things to come, is that once we have released our grip from this world, or at least as we are releasing our grip from this world, he doesn't want us to think that we don't have a responsibility in this world. That if the first part of it elects exiles is to say, look, this is not our home, the next part of it is to now say, well, what is it that we're supposed to be doing in this world? And this idea of temple is gonna come to the surface. 
Now the whole concept behind temple is, is it's this place in which humanity gets to meet God. In fact, when you look all through the Old Testament, every aspect of it was this, this place now that's built where his, his presence would dwell and in this powerful way that when they would encounter the temple, they would encounter God. And I would say what he's telling us as far as Cornerstone, and I would even take it beyond this, all the churches in Simi Valley that follow Jesus Christ, all of us today as we worship, we are the people of God. Therefore, we are the temple. And here's what's so powerful about it. When they encounter us, they encounter the living God. Now, not because of anything in us, but because of the work of Jesus and the reality that right now, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, that amongst us and through us, the Holy Spirit is dwelling and moving. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ here today, because I don't know everybody, right now, I want you to know this, that because you're amongst God's people who are these living stones, you're now encountering God in some powerful way that we're going to talk about here in just a little bit. Now, what are the implications of this? Well, in this particular passage, he starts off and makes sure we're not the centerpiece of it. Look at who he starts off with. He starts about this one who we come to, this living stone. He's making sure that we understand that everything about who we are as far as identity, we are not the center of the universe. The center of the universe and everything that he's talking about here is Christ. In fact, when you go down to verse 6, you can look there. It says, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. He's the main one here. He's the one who's chosen. He's the one that's precious. Look down at verse 7. He's the one that gives honor to those who believe. But for those who don't believe, this stone now, it says, becomes a, a, a cornerstone that in a powerful way causes this stumbling. It's a rock of offense that they stumble because they don't believe the word that we talked about last week. In order for us to understand who we are, it is so important to understand that the centerpiece of who we are must be Jesus Christ. I don't know if you remember, but back in the day when Galileo Galilee finally figured out that the world, everything didn't revolve around the earth, it revolved around the sun, it took people a long time to kind of wrap their minds around that. But in a very powerful way, this is I think what Peter is saying right off the front end of what it means to now be his people Everything revolves around Jesus. In fact, everything about our lives, if we're going to now think about what we're supposed to be doing, everything about what we're supposed to do, especially when you read the New Testament, is to shape our lives in and around Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to talk about what that means when we get to verse 9, but just off the front end, that's what we have to understand. We are not the center of the universe. And who this world is, or what this world is, and who we are in this world. And I would just say this to those of you that don't know Jesus. You will never understand what life is until you understand that Jesus Christ is the very center of it all. Now go back to verse 4, or verse 5. Now here's how he defines us. He says, now not only is there this one who's chosen and precious that we're to line up our lives to, he's the cornerstone but you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. You're, you're, you're all these mishmashed group of people, but yet God is building you into this place in which they will encounter God. Look at this. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices to this now that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what is he talking about, and what does this have to do with our identity? 
Well, look down in verse 9. I want you to go there because in a lot of ways, he's going to define what this means now to be this this holy priesthood down in verse 9. Look at verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So let's talk about some of the who's here. Who are you? You're a group of people that are centering your lives around Jesus Christ because he's the absolute center of all that we're supposed to be. But now he's going to clarify it even more of who we are by calling us the first one. Look down in verse 9. You are a chosen race. I love that. In this particular case, he's not so much necessarily talking about this idea of race like we tend to think about black, white, you know, brown, yellow, those kinds of things. In fact, he's more talking about the idea, and I'm going to be careful saying this, okay? So think of this not as capital K, but capital C clan, okay? We're, we're, we're a family. He says who you are, and this is what we have to get into our head, not us individually, but all of us together, we are a chosen family. Now, why is that so important to identity, Because I believe deep within us, every single one of us in this room, we have a longing to have a connection to to a family. Every last one of us. A few years ago, I was was speaking at a thing out in Indiana, and this lady walks up to me, and she goes, we're related. Now, usually when somebody starts that way, you get scared. (laughs) But it was good. She says, you have the last name Nicewanger, and it's spelled the exact way as, as mine, Nicewanger. Now, again, that's strange in and of itself. So we talked back and forth, and she goes, would you like all my research into understanding your history, your family history? Well, you know this. All of us in here, we have this longing to know, where did we come from? Who are we? Why did I end up the way that I am? Why do I have the nose that I have that's so stinking big? And why is it that I have such propensity to put on weight? It couldn't be because I sit around too much and eat too much. It must be be genetic. (laughs) She sent it to me and I realized, and again, when I went back in, I was like, no way. The first place we encountered the Nicewangers, they weren't even the Nicewangers, they were the Von Nuschwangers. Hello, my name is Todd Von Nuschwanger. I was like, oh yeah, that's cooler than Nicewanger though. We encounter them in the 1600s in southwestern Germany. They were all a bunch of Anabaptists. Now, if you don't know anything about the Anabaptists, they were the group of Christians that not only did the Catholics not like, but the Protestants didn't like either. And in being then totally now ostracized from all things, that group of people left southwestern Germany and came to modern-day Virginia, or what even eventually would become West Virginia. My great-whatever-grandfather was a captain in the Revolutionary War. Then became stories of another grandpa that served on the Union Army in the Civil War, and he, he not only that, but he saved the chief of one of the major tribes in, 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 the, in the Midwest, right? And I'm reading this thing going, no way, this is my family. We have a longing for family. Now, what's so crazy about what he does here is he says, but your main family is your chosen family found in Christ. 
Now, we have a hard time with that, right? Not only, but they had a hard time back in the day. In Matthew 12, I don't know if you remember this story, right? But Jesus is sitting there chilling with the people, and somebody comes in and goes, Hey, Jesus, your, your, your brothers and your sister, or your brothers and your mother are here. Now, if somebody right now told me, okay, because my mom, if she came in and they said, hey, your mom and your siblings are here, I'd be like, where is she? Everything goes on hold. Where's my mom? Because my mom is the little general. <laughs> That's not what Jesus did. He suddenly redefined family. He said, who are my mother and my brothers? And he says, it's you all that do the will of God. You all are my family. See, all of us in, the, in this room, right, we have family. I, I told you the good part. Let me tell you the other side of my family, on my mom's side. On the other side of my family, there are Arnolds. Now, if you know anything about U.S. history, I have one grandfather that was one who fought in the Revolutionary War, and so I'm like proud. The other side of my family has this man named Benedict Arnold. <laughs> so I haven't really explored that side of my family. I don't want anything to do with that one. But there is one family that we're a part of that has a father who is a good father. And the person of Jesus, the, the chief cornerstone, that is our family. That's who we are. In fact, all of us in this room, the most important family that we have is not our direct nuclear family. It's not even our extended family. The most important family that we have is our family in Christ. And that is hard to overcome. It toys with our identity. Because now all of a sudden, you all in this room are people that I need to treat like family. Now, some of you, right, you're, you're the great aunts and uncles. Some of you are the kind of the crazy aunt and uncle, right? But, but we're all, I'm kind of, I, I am too. I'm on the crazy side, so it's okay. But there's just this side of it. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is our family. And if you want to know the history of our family, it's found right here. This is the lineage of our family. If you want to know even too in a more way what it looked like after Jesus left the earth and the apostles were no longer here, I don't know if you enjoy this, but I love reading church history. All the ins and outs and the ups and the downs of what it means to be one of his. This is our family. It's an identity of who we are. That's the first one. What it means now to be this. So he messes in the first case with family. But look down here. He not only goes after this idea of us being a chosen race, but he calls us, and I love this, a royal priesthood. It speaks to two sides, I believe, of who Jesus is. Jesus is king of kings, and he is lord of lords. If you are in Christ, this, this is something you have to understand about our family. You are not just anybody, but you are princes and princesses in the kingdom. Jesus being the great king of all kings, he, he lords over all, but we're a part of something that is royal. We're not just anybody, but because of the work of Jesus, we are royalty. But Jesus isn't just king of kings and lord of lords, he's also the high priest. Yeah, yeah. So he calls us in here, we fit this dual rule that we live inside of this kingdom as citizens where we are priests, or we are prince and princesses. Oh my gosh, I was having a hard time saying that. But we're also these priests. But what's the significance of that? Well, have you ever noticed talking to somebody, once we get past like, what's your name, right? You know, I'm, I'm Todd von Nuschwanga, and you kind of get to that point. We always ask the question, what's your job? 
What do you do for a living? Vocation. When's the last time you looked at somebody and said, well, my vocation is actually I'm a priest? Isn't that funny? With sandals. With sandals, because Jesus wore sandals. And I want to look like Jesus. But it's just this idea of who we are now. We are priests. That's who we primarily are. But what do priests do? Well, priests are these people, like I talked about in the temple, man. They make sure the temple is all together and set and ready because we want the world to encounter the living God. Each of us now inside of this playing our own distinct parts, but the key aspect of the temple becomes this idea of sacrifice. We sacrifice, and we don't just bring kind of good stuff. We bring the best. Every aspect of our identity is, is that my main vocation is not as a pastor of Cornerstone or if you're a lawyer or whatever you might be, that is not your primary vocation. Your primary vocation is you are a priest. And by the way, you're a priest of a kingdom and a temple that will have no end. In fact, I've watched it all the time when somebody finally loses a job or when they come to the point of retirement, they don't know what to do because they didn't primarily first see themselves as a priest. They saw themselves in their occupation. They're devastated when they lose a job. They search around trying to figure out who they are after they're retired. I remember talking to my mom. I'm like, what are you going to do with your retirement? I remember her looking back at me going, I don't know. And then she just kind of talked through this quandary of defining herself as someone in politics for years and years. You are a priest. But you're not only that, look at the next part of it. He says down there, you are a holy nation. I love this. Not only do we define ourselves by our families, or not only do we define ourselves by our vocation, but we always define ourselves when somebody comes up and goes, oh, well, you know, what's your name? What do you do for a living? Where are you from? Now, for me, when I answer that question, if I'm outside of the United States, right, I, I, I'm from the United States, and they usually look at me, you know, like, I don't know, people don't like people, the United States, people outside the United States, you know, so then I'm like, you know, but I'm from Wyoming, and then people are like, oh, that's why you're so strange. And, and, but it's just this side of it, right? We, we have this thing about where we're from. Even right now in the Olympics, right? I was watching last night. Did anybody watch last night? Okay, I, I, can't, I don't even care about swimming. If you like swimming, you know, that's between you and the Lord. But I don't like swimming. But man, as the USA, USA was swimming, I'm just like, go swimmer person, do your swim thing. You know, I don't even know what they're doing, right? I'm just like, yeah. And we won six medals, right? And I'm just like, USA, USA, USA. You know, I've got my children, and I'm holding it up. I knew those people that won gold, silver, and bronze as much as I knew the guy from Croatia. But we identify ourselves by our nation. Now, this gets really messy, especially, I would say this, over the last few years. You really saw this in people's lives. You saw it especially in Christians, where we're called to be a holy nation, a, a nation that is so distinct, a nation that doesn't have boundaries, a nation that doesn't have borders, a, a nation that supersedes all things, a nation that is holy. It, it takes on the very character of God. 
And we became satisfied to primarily make ourselves Americans before Christians. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, I appreciate that I'm an American. I, I love the re constitutional republic form of government. But this nation and this kingdom will come to an end one day. But the nation that I'm a part of that is ruled over by Jesus Christ will have no end. You get that, right? And when we find our primary identity in who we are as, and again, if you're a Canadian here, I'm sorry, but if you're an American, right, as an American, we find our identity as Americans when all of a sudden things go weird, we freak out. Why? Because we found ourselves first and primary as Americans and not primarily as followers of Jesus. It is primary. Now, we are to be like Daniel and to, wherever we live, help the government and the, and the nation and the communities that we live in flourish. We're called to do that. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ here today, your primary identity is not as an American. And when we flip-flop those things, you are going to go up and down with every political season. You're going to go up and down with every law that's passed and whether or not the Constitution is truly able to do this or that, whatever the Supreme Court does. But when your king is Jesus, all other things fall in line because you know he is in charge. And so we've got to get this mentality in us. But we've also now got to be the group of people that we live the character of God. See, other nations are primarily identified by their laws. They're primarily identified by the color of people's skin, who they are. Not us. As a holy nation, according to Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, we're a group of people that have been changed by the heart. Our identity is not in our nation. Our identity is not in our job. Our identity is not in our family. How they see us now is not by the color of our skin or how tall or short we are, any of those other things. We're identified as a group of people that God has taken out a stone heart and put in a heart of flesh, and he's written his commands on our heart. We are changed people. That's who we are. But there's a fourth one here, and I want you to see this. Look at it, down in verse 5, or verse 9. Not only are we all those things, but we're a people for his own possession. I love that, by the way. If the first part kind of meddles with this idea of, of who's our real family... And if the second part kind of meddles with our vocation and the third part kind of meddles with this idea of the, the people group that we're a part of and how we define ourselves, this last one talks about who owns me. Now we as Americans, ain't nobody owned me, right? That's why we broke away from the stupid Brits. <laughs> nobody owns me. But can I just say this to you? We need to be owned. We're designed to be a possession. And the beauty of being a possession, I've always told people this, is that if God doesn't possess you, something else will. Something else will own you. But the idea of now him talking about this idea of God's special, this, this possession that he has of us, on one end of it, what it means is the very God of the universe, he, we are unique to him, we are his. That means we have confidence, we have security. 
That means we understand that the very one who rules and reigns over all things, the very one who spoke the entire cosmos into existence, the very one that calls us now his sons and his daughters, we're his. He has his his love on us. We're precious to him. That's why in John 10, Jesus said, you can't be snatched out of the Father's hand because the Father and I will make sure that never happens. In fact, at the very end in Genesis 21, when all of God's people are standing before him, there's this statement that is now, finally now, the kingdom of God is amongst people, but the idea is, is now these are my people and, 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 and he is our God. The longing of every heart is finally for us to get to the point where we understand this idea that we are his completely. Now the other side of that then is, is if we are his completely, and this is where it toys with us, that means everything that we have is his. My money, my house, my car, my kids. So much of this now is this this work that's being done in our identity thinking, no, they're mine. This is my wife and my kids and my car and my church. This is not your church or my church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. People always say, oh, Todd, you're in charge. I hope not. I hope I'm not in charge. You all know me well enough to know that if I'm in charge, we're in trouble. We've got to get this possessive idea out of our head. This is not ours. We are his, and everything that we have is his. And again, this just toys, and this messes with our identity in so many ways. But oh, I love the fact that I'm his, which means he's got me. I don't know about you, but over this last year and a half, those of you that are followers of Jesus, aren't you glad that God has us? Holy cow. I'm thankful that this next year, God has us. Now, he might ask us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but we can fear no evil because of who our God is. That's who we are. That's who you are if you're a follower of Jesus. On so many levels, I feel like we keep selling who we are in our birthright as a follower of Jesus, and we keep buying into these lesser things like C.S. Lewis talked about in his book. We said we, his idea was, he said, we keep making these mud pies and puddles when God is offering us the ocean. Now, but why is God doing it? Because he must want us to do something. What is it that he wants us to do? Look down in verse nine. He says, I want you to understand who you are as a chosen race. I want you to understand who your identity is, family, the idea of vocation, the idea of your nation, your people group, the idea that you're mine. Look at this. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What's he saying there? So often when we talk about what we've been, sa- we've been saved, we talk about what we've been saved from, and I've talked about this a lot, versus what we've been saved to and for. 
the idea here is, is almost like this idea that you as a group of people now are being built into this amazing temple, but it became, becomes this temple that transmits to the rest of the world the virtues, the excellencies of who Jesus is by how we live together, how we operate together, because in the coming weeks you're going to see this. Every aspect of how God's people now live together based upon who they are as these elect exiles in this temple is important to the proclamation of the world who we are. I was thinking about it even from this standpoint. I don't know if you live in the San Fernando Valley or whether you live in Simi or Moorpark or T.O. or anywhere else you might live. But along with the other Bible-believing churches in this area, we are the proclamation of Jesus. We are it. We're his plan. There is no other plan by God. We're it. I love that on one hand, but on the other end, holy patoli, we're it? Yes, but that's sufficient. When I drove in over the hill last night, coming back, we picked up my son from something, and you know those moments you look out over your town and you just go, oh my gosh, this is the place God's called me to live. We're the temple. I love my town. As I drove in, I saw this old couple walking down the street on Madeira and they're holding hands and I'm like, those two old people, you're in my town. Turn the corner, another kid was riding his bike and I'm like, oh, don't, don't get hurt kid, but you're in my town. Came up the street, there was people out in their front yard. I'm just, suddenly I'm seeing all these people and realizing these are the people that God has called us to proclaim the goodness of Jesus to. Like, this is our time. This is our place. It was so cool. I, I, I went back and I, I did a memorial service for a good friend of mine, his mom. She was, like, incredible in my life. In a lot of ways, she was kind of a second mom to me. And anyways, I finished, and I'm looking out over these group of people that I hadn't seen for 30 years. And I realized that those used to be the people, but then it hit me with my wife and I there right now as followers of Jesus. We were the representatives of Jesus in this moment. We were, the, in a lot of ways, the temple in that moment. As I proclaimed, hopefully, the goodness of Jesus, a guy that I, I grew up with, that to be honest with you, we weren't the best of friends. In fact, we were, not, we were probably the worst of friends in a lot of ways. But he came up to me afterwards, and we just started talking through the gospel. In that moment, I realized I got to be the priest in that area. Wherever God's people are, we are the temple, and we get to encounter the world. We are the place in which God meets people. In fact, let me just say this to you, those of you that don't know Jesus. Just, those of you that do know Jesus, just give me a second to talk to them. My heart and my prayer is that as you're here today, you won't just hear a message about the greatness of God. I want you to hear that and the goodness of Jesus in rescuing us, the power of the Holy Spirit to do amazing things. I hope what you encounter is you encounter the temple. I hope you see the excellencies of Jesus being proclaimed. I hope you see what he talks about here of a group of people that went from darkness to light. That's our message. Our message is the story of used to be in sin, we used to be enslaved, we used to be dark, and now all of a sudden, because of the work of Jesus Christ, the proclamation of the church is, is that now those who follow him can be placed in the light. 
I pray that today you see that. But for the rest of us here that are followers of Jesus, now I want to talk to you. We have a year coming up that I am so excited about. I don't even care what happens this next year. If we have to go back into lockdown, not go back into lockdown. If we have to do this, we have to do that. Whatever it is. I'm excited about this next year because I'm excited about Jesus and I'm excited about the church. I'm excited about the opportunity that we have in front of us. I believe that this next year for Cornerstone, and I pray this, I was praying for all the churches in Simi Valley that I, that I believe know Jesus and follow Jesus and the different churches kind of on the outskirts that I know of and I just was praying over them going, God, would you allow your church to truly be the temple this year? Would you allow us to encounter the world to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus who called us out of darkness to light? Would we, verse 10, be these ones that know that we didn't used to be a people, but now we're a people. We didn't used to receive mercy, but now we receive mercy. Oh, Father, would you do that? I believe in your life over this next year is a phenomenal opportunity. And if it's one of the shepherds here, and I speak, I think, on behalf of all the other shepherds, the elders, the pastors... This next year is our opportunity to be the temple, no matter what happens, no matter what happens. This is our time. Are you with me on that? This is our time. And we can spend all of our time next year complaining and moaning and moping and talking about the government this and all this, that, and what else we might be able to talk about or Cornerstone Community Church, and again, I pray all the churches in this area would be this, or we can quit doing that and we can proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Which one do you want to do? And then I'd say this, let's go for it. Let's just go for it. Let's believe that God is as big as he is and go for it. Let's be this people. Now, for the next few weeks, let me kind of give you a heads up to see, so you understand what's coming. Christian, because I'm going to be leaving on vacation, and besides, I didn't want to talk about submission and all those other things, so I'm going to let him do it. <laughs> no, I think it's awesome to talk about submission because I think it tells an amazing story about Jesus. But over the next few weeks, let's be here, Okay? Because I think the rest of what he's going to unpack is found in verses 11 and 12, which is going to all talk about what does it look like now for us to be this people. Let's be here and let's be ready. Let me just say this. It's not even like a legalistic thing I'm saying this, but let's not be the 10 o'clock service or the 1015 service. I'm dead serious right now. Let's be the 10 o'clock service. I want us to come in ready. I want us to come in ready to worship Jesus and to open God's word and to go, that's right. What is it going to be like over this next year to be God's people? I want us to be fired up because I really do believe this next year is going to be an amazing opportunity that I don't want us to miss. I'm looking out at some of you. You're not sure. <laughs> and all God's people said? Yeah. All right. 